And we are back with episode 16 of Beyond the Profile. I am your host, Shiny, and I am vaxxed. Feeling shitty, but I'm vaxxed. And I hope everyone else out there is getting vaxxed and going to feel shitty with me. But, yeah. Public service announcement, go get vaccinated. Okay, this is sponsored by the CDC, but not really. At the same time, this is going to be a short intro because... I want to go lay down. So, you know the spiel. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Go check us out on social media, at Beyond the Profile, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, all of that good stuff. My conversation today is with a friend of mine, went to college together, extremely interesting. He is someone that has gotten to the realm and industry of climate change. We talk about his travels of understanding the the different climate from different cultures and countries like Indonesia to Uganda to India, things like that. He is now working at a venture capital firm that gives money to different businesses to to promote decarbonization. So you guys will absolutely love this episode. Yeah, wow, now I'm out of breath and I need to go lay down. Okay, see you on the other side. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Today, I'm joined on the show by an up-and-coming expert when it comes to decarbonization and scaling climate change solutions across power, agriculture, transportation, industry, and beyond. He's a principal at Lower Carbon Capital, which is a venture capital firm that funds research and invests in technologies to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. He was also a Fulbright Scholar in Indonesia and received his master's degree in international policy, specializing in energy and the environment from Stanford University. That guest today is Alex LaPlaza. Alex, thanks for joining the show, my man. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the chat. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, again, like everything that I said in that intro is just fully packed with all types of information that I really want to get into about decarbonization, climate change, just topics that are really on the forefront of a lot of people's minds nowadays. And it's it's a very, I feel like it's a very buzzword topic, you know, whatever that might be nowadays that we're getting into the 2020s. But why don't you start off a little bit with this episode of telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up, go to college, get into the industry, everything like that? Yeah, so I was born in Spain. Uh, my father's Spanish, my mother's American, so born there, but spent most of my time growing up in New York. Uh, and But very much, you know, going back every summer, very much kind of growing up between those two cultures. Um, and my parents both, they both worked for, with children with severe physical disabilities. So I kind of grew up with that very much at the front of my mind that, you know, seeing their example that a, a career in service of others was a fulfilling life. And so from a very young age, you know, I was like that bright eyed, idealistic uh, high schooler, you know, reading Gandhi and and, and <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. And, and all that stuff. And so I guess that that kind of combination of this intercultural, this this uh, multicultural upbringing, plus that that focus on on service is what led me to uh, American University, where I studied 
international relations because you know that's what you do when you when you uh, just want to do something international and and yeah. uh, want to help other people but didn't really have a good idea of what to do with it uh, yeah so I got to AU and I I tried a few things I think I tried quite a few things that just taught me that I didn't want to do that you know I thought I was going to be a diplomat didn't want to do that thought I was going to do international development um, and that was interesting but um, actually my my first kind of step into climate or into I guess the environmental realm quite more broadly is uh starts with a guy that has come on this podcast before uh tyler steinhardt one of your early guests oh nice yeah and he he was working with an organization in uh, uganda uh it was a nonprofit that had stood up a a school a primary school in in rural remote uganda and he was i was just living with him at the time and he was basically like hey man do you want to come and and teach at this school you'll be a soccer coach and i was like yeah, for sure 100 oh, wow. percent." like i'll go to i'll go to uganda and, and you know play soccer every day and <laughs> um get a nice line on the resume and and see that part of the world and learn a bit more so yeah I, I got there and i that's where i first was exposed to i guess the the lived experience of climate change um the, the place we lived the place i spent the summer in was was very remote, very rural, very agricultural, but had been suffering from uh, the changing climate, basically the the changing rainfall patterns. And I saw firsthand, you know, kind of havoc that can wreak. Um, and that's that's, I guess, where I saw how how much it touches, how all the different kind of sh- threads it it touches, and and how if you work in that space, you can pull a bunch of different threads by just targeting that one challenge. Um, I mean, in particular, like I saw, just for an example, I saw, uh, so they they installed the water pump at the school. And the result of that was that school attendance increased because kids, mm-hmm. rather than taking the day off to go you know, fetch water, uh, walk miles to fetch water, they would just fetch water at school, bring it back. Yeah. And that's, and that's really interesting that you bring that, that kind of example up, because when I think of something like that, it's obviously, you know, Uganda, a very third world country. You don't you don't see that thing happen in the United States, in Europe, you know, Spain, uh, Central America, maybe uh, at times. But like that is very much, very much third world. And when I think of something like that and when I, you know, try and transition it to, to what you've done, and wanting to get into climate change and, and the environment and things like that, what did you really want to learn most about or enhance your learning capabilities after you saw something like that? Because the United States, Europe, they're not dealing with that those kinds of examples. I mean, I feel like that's very much on the extreme end. You know, what were you kind of seeing when you came back to the U.S. or, or you know, maybe what you've seen with your family in in Spain and things like that? Yeah, so I got back and I didn't really know what to do with that experience other than knowing I that climate was the space I wanted to focus on. I guess I realized, I mean, the most the most straightforward direction from there is to work on energy. Uh, at the time, you know, they're almost synonymous, things, clean energy and climate. Obviously, it's much broader than that, but certainly energy is the largest driver of climate change uh, then and now. And so I, I kind of dabbled with energy for a little bit, but to be 
completely honest, I was intimidated by it. I, I very much mm-hmm. never considered myself uh, an empirical person, you know, math and, and I, I like science, but math was never yeah. my strong suit. And so I just felt because I wasn't an engineer, I didn't know how I could cut at energy. And for the time being, when I got back, I focused on food and water security. I guess it was the more visceral experience of seeing, you know, the effects of water, the effects of drought on agriculture that I decided to focus on food and water security. And so, yeah, I went, I went through food and water security and, uh, I guess that's what led me to to Indonesia to Fulbright, which is kind of where the the path deviated. Yeah, yeah, and you and you received that that Fulbright scholarship uh, for a project called Community Level Institutional Adaptation to Water Scarcity in Lombok, and that's kind of the project that you worked on based out of Indonesia. Can you elaborate? A little bit more about your time in Indonesia, the program as a whole, that particular project. I mean, just reading that was a mouthful. So just getting a sense as to what that really was on a more, you know, 30,000 foot view level would be would be great. Yeah. So Indonesia, um, it was kind of a result of knowing a few things that I wanted uh, and trying to piece them together in terms of my, my post-graduation plans. And so I knew I wanted to travel and I knew I wanted to go to Southeast Asia largely because in high school I was a massive uh, Andy Bourdain fan and he really, <laughs> you know, he really romanticizes yeah. the region. And so that was kind of the next destination I, I had in mind, largely for selfish reasons, to be honest. I just kind of wanted to explore that part of the world and I wanted a, a valuable professional and personal experience while doing it. And so, you know, in, in retrospect, it was perfect because climate change is a massive, Indonesia's has a massive role to play in climate change, both as as a driver of it and one of the countries that will be hit quite hard. And so, uh, you know, I felt it fit for a number of reasons. I mean, I didn't mention on my application that I also wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to live on a, a beautiful tropical island and, and surf <laughs> and scuba dive. But um, but yeah, so so that was kind of the, the why I came to Indonesia. But yeah, so I didn't actually know much about water. Uh, I didn't know much at all about academia, really. And I think probably the the mouthful of the name reflects that. Um, <laughs> but I, I just kind of worked backwards towards the person I thought that they wanted to see on an application in an applicant. And I, I worked backwards until I kind of became that person. So, you know, I kind of took some some classes at the, the embassy in D.C. I, I tried to speak to everyone on campus that had any any kind of relation to the country or, or to the domain. And yeah, so then I went to go, was fortunate to get it. And I worked on basically food and water security in the context of climate change. That's where I realized that it all comes back to energy once again. And so uh, I realized that's where the real game in a game is. And so for context, I lived on this, this beautiful little tropical island called Lombok. It's just quite close to Bali. And it's a volcanic island. And uh, the volcano is in the middle, and basically it's covered in rainforests and rivers run down from the volcano to all the villages, and they all rely on the water for rice cultivation um, as the as the staple crop. But what was happening is that they would chop up their forest, they would deforest the forests on the volcano for fuel wood. For they didn't have electricity, they just used it for fuel for cooking, for water, for whatever it may be, and that the result was they would have drought in the dry season and then floods in the rainy season, and so. You know, that kind of clicked for me is like if they had access to energy, they wouldn't need to deforest and they wouldn't be suffering from floods and droughts. And so that's kind of where I, I figured I needed to to get smart on energy and overcome my my you know intimidation with the more technical aspects of the domain. And, and also where I realized like there's there's plenty of ways to cut out energy without being an engineer. Yeah. So when when you're 
when you're ingraining yourself in that culture and understanding everything about the deforestation and, you know, the volcanoes and really just that island in general, side note, I hit you up about Bali when I went to Bali and asked you for all types of recommendations. Any, any listener out there hit up uh, Alex of any recommendations in Bali. They the were amazing. <laughs> He's got the spots. Um, but when you talk, uh, w- when you were talking about the deforestation and everything like that, when it relates to the water scarcity, is is this something that you found yourself or was this you working with other academics or professors within in Indonesia? You know, how did you come about these these findings overall? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't imagine that anyone on my selections panel will listen to this, but they might be upset if, if they did. But like <laughs> I said, I kind of worked backwards and I knew what I wanted to do and I knew I wanted to go to Indonesia. I knew I wanted to enjoy the experience. And I learned that, uh, I learned quite a bit about the selections process for Fulbright just by speaking to former Fulbrighters. And they told me basically, you gotta go where most other, most other scholars don't go. Um, they're more likely to look upon your application favorably. So, you know, I just, I explored the country really a lot of time on Google maps, honestly, uh, just kind of yeah. learning about various islands and, and thinking about where it would be a cool place to live and a cool place to learn. Um, and so I landed on Lombok, um, because I felt it was kind of pretty emblematic of, of, of a lot of the things I wanted to learn about a lot of the, you know, it's, it's quite a large population. They're largely agricultural suffering from, from climate. And, uh, I learned about these communities that are, are, uh, working together uh, to manage their water upstream and downstream in, in the face of uh, changing rainfall patterns um, and the deforestation. And I figured that fit really well with my my education in international relations and, and just studying institutions. Um, and so I tailored it that, that way, but knowing full well that I would get there and I would see the reality on the ground and change my my project once I got there. Yeah. And this kind of leads me to, to the my next question in, in terms of these different situations where you've kind of ingrained yourself in has always been you on the ground, you being there, seeing for yourself, these examples right from the start and really getting a sense of, and understanding as to what is going on in that region and in, in, in those cultures. And, you know, I've known you for a number of years now, you are like a plus traveler, you know, you travel everywhere, do your thing, get ingrained in different cultures, different languages. I mean, you're just an adventurer. You know, my question is, you know, when when we were talking about Uganda and now Indonesia and things like that, how important is it to be ingrained within these different cultures and understanding, really understanding the entire encompassing climate issues that we're all dealing with in different regions of the entire world? And and how have you really brought that to maybe like uh, studies that you've done, findings that you've done, and and really just your thoughts on climate in general? Yeah. So where it stems from is probably my upbringing, uh, given my my parents uh, being from different cultures. Because for a long time, actually growing up in New York, it was actually a source of kind of ambiguity. I, I wasn't really sure how to navigate my identity, specifically because my dad's from a part of Spain that uh, very much doesn't want to be Spain. He's, he's from the Basque region of Spain. And so mm-hmm. I grew up in New York where everyone's proud to be you know, Italian or Greek or Chinese or Korean. And you know, I was proud to be Spanish, but then I would go back to the summer and everyone was like very anti-Spain. And so that was kind of this weird gray zone where I had to navigate until 
I got old enough and mature enough and realized that that was my identity and kind of fully embraced it and fully embraced the, I guess, the privilege of, of traveling that I was afforded by my parents. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about when I think about travel, I think a lot about uh, and how it relates to my work is Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, not to get too philosophical, but basically yeah, just the, you know, so much of our understanding of the world and our place in it is just subject to what we perceive. And, and so I learned from uh, the, the privilege of traveling when I was younger that, uh, you know, the broader your, your perceptions, the broader your understanding of the world. Um, and from a more kind of uh, personal view, I just found that kind of putting myself self in place, places of discomfort, I really challenged me and made me grow more and made me learn more, um, made me learn more about who I was and, and who other people are and, and my place in the world um, and how it relates to my work. Um, with Indonesia, for example, I guess this was probably a lesson from my experience in, in Uganda, but I realized that these are the places that are going to be experiencing climate change. You know, when, when we talk about the worst impacts of climate change now and into the future, it's not going to be in places like New York or, or D.C. Certainly, you know, there's going to be impacts everywhere, as we see in California, as we see in Texas. But um, the worst of it is going to be at the communities that have the, the smallest role in, in causing the problem. And so that's why I wanted to go to places like Indonesia and, and learn about their experiences and how they could adapt and, you know, how they can kind of promote some climate resilience. And that's what my project ended up being on. I mean, then later on, when I got into energy, it's that's why I also went to India, because I realized, you know, the transition to clean energy and, and successfully decarbonizing and avoiding the worst impacts of climate change in large part is going to depend on if India can decarbonize. And so that's that's where I, I decided I just needed to go and check it out and, and learn what the ground truth is. Yeah. Do you mind elaborating a little bit more about your time in India? Because when I when I think of India and, you know, I, I actually just had a conversation this weekend about it where there are a lot of corporations moving outside of the actual city because the employees within uh, Delhi or, or just the heavily populated cities cannot go outside because the pollution is so, so bad. So do you want to maybe elaborate a little bit more about your findings of energy and within India as well while you're there? Yeah. So I, so this was my, the, the summer in between my graduate program when I got to Stanford. Um, like I said, I was working on, I went back to graduate school. I went to Stanford to start focusing on energy and realized, you know, India is where the, the real game is. And I mean, from a more personal, more personal perspective, like like I just said, it was if for me it was intimidating. I, it was a very intimidating country. Just so many people, so many yeah. languages. Just kind of everything's turned up all the way to ten. You know, everything it does, it just turns it up. Yeah. Um, so I, that was enticing because I found put me out of my comfort zone quite a bit. Um, so I was lucky to get an internship at a at the country's largest clean energy firm. Um, just working on deploying solar and, and wind across the country. It's actually based in a city called Gurgaon, which is on the outside outside of Delhi, on the outskirts. And it, I think Greenpeace rated it the most polluted city in the world uh, one year. It's oh just, my God. yeah, it's just like a mix of just dust and and pollution. And then I was there in the summer, and it hit like like a hundred and twenty degrees on the regular. Uh, and the oh crazy thing is like. Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing is you, you spend all day in air conditioning because you can't, that's just, you can't live like that outside. And I mean, yeah. people people suffer outside because they don't have any other option. But 
But yeah, so so this is an example of this air conditioning, for example, is what I mean by India is kind of the a really crucial part about of climate change and decarbonization. So 120 degrees on the regular, it's impossible to be outside. And yet, maybe 5% of the country is it has access to air conditioning, 5 to 10 or something, some ridiculously low statistic. And so wow. this country is growing quickly, their population is growing quickly, they're getting richer, their energy grid is growing. Um, and so, of course, they're entitled to air conditioning. It's it's a necessity. It's not even a luxury. It's a necessity. And so, you know, you're going to have hundreds of millions of people getting air conditioning, and that's just going to drive up electricity demand, drive up greenhouse gas emissions, and kind of feed back into this cycle. And so, those are the kinds of things that I was I was looking to go to India to explore. Yeah, and it it, it kind of seems like that was maybe the the bridge to you starting at lower carbon capital which is really just a venture capital firm that funds different research and companies in, in terms of decreasing the amount of CO2 emissions throughout the world. Do you want to elaborate a little bit on what you know lower carbon capital really is and, and maybe the, the mission of, of the firm in general? Yeah, so like you said, we're a, we're a venture capital firm and we're, we're early stage. So for context, the, the fund was started by Chris and Crystal Saka. Um, Chris Saka had a he was coming out of ten years of investing through lowercase capital his his first fund which was just a traditional tech fund and did very well and uh, you might know him from from Shark Tank he was the you know the guy wearing the cowboy shirts um, <laughs> for a few seasons and so he got to a place where he just didn't find a whole lot of meaning investing in all these just meaning pointless apps um, and kind of walked away from it pretty publicly. Um, decided to focus on spending time with his family, but also some more meaningful invest in investments and more meaningful places to um, to give. And that's, you know, for at the top of his mind was climate change. Um, he also did some stuff on democracy and, and criminal justice reform. But when he was working on climate, originally, it was just philanthropically, he was funding research into some technologies, he was funding research into nonprofits. But he realized that the the caliber of of entrepreneurs and startups coming into the space focused on having trying to make a dent on climate was just almost too good to pass up. Yeah. So they stood up lower carbon capital. And, and like you said, it's a fund that basically invests in three buckets and the first being uh, carbon reduction. So any kind of carbon reducing solution um, that will be in, you know, it could be in power, it can be in transportation or agriculture, um, just following the big slices of the carbon emissions pie. And then the second bucket is carbon removal. So actually removing and sequestering carbon that's already in the atmosphere and, and storing it away permanently, just drawing it down. And then the third bucket is, uh, we call it buying ourselves more time. So things like climate adaptation and resilience, but also funding research and and uh, funding nonprofits like the original vision. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's extremely interesting, especially someone that is basically a celebrity investor like Chris Soccer was, you know, being on Shark Tank and, and the number of different uh, social media platforms and apps that he's been involved in from a an investor perspective. But when I think about getting into the climate world a little bit more, you know, just like I said, kind of from the start of the the podcast, was it's a very hot topic right now. It's it's se- a little sexy to get into, but also at the same time, there are different buttons that push people the wrong way, you know, when it comes to legislation, when it comes to, you know, the necessity for positive PR for climate change, you know, the need for innovative technology and things like that, you know, 
where do you get your drive to continuously go after this problem day in and day out? I mean, it there just seems to be so many different factors that have to go your way, the fund's way, you know, Chris's way, his wife, everything like that to ultimately get to a point where, yes, we can make a change here. You know, what 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 kind of drives you in that sense? Yeah, so I consider myself really fortunate in in this uh, in, in this regard because I spend every day talking to people, incredibly smart people, incredibly ambitious with just unbelievable solutions. Um, and, you know, my job is to listen to them, explain it to me. Like I'm, I'm a five-year-old basically, uh, you know, just dumb yeah. it down for me. And, and, um, and so when you're day in and day out, listening to people talk about solutions, I think it's, it's a kind of a, a paradigm shift. And I mean, for me, I'd kind of been coming to this conclusion myself, but this made it fundamentally clear, way clear is that, that, so climate is an accelerant of every kind of challenge we have in the world. And, you know, if you you name a challenge and climate change will make it worse, it will exacerbate it. It's kind of Mm -hmm. the, just pick it, pick up the speed on everything. And so the flip side of that is that if you address climate change, there's a myriad of, of unforeseen positive consequences and for unforeseen positive consequences. There's just endless ways in which you can, you can make positive change just by addressing, you know, decarbonization. I mean, for example, like this is something that I, I think is mind blowing to me and people kind of have a sense of it generally, but I don't think they understand the magnitude, but I think one in five deaths uh, globally last year are a direct result of, of carbon pollution, um, just through, you know, air pollution and, and various public health effects. And so, you know, you clean decarbonization up, you clean, uh, sorry, you clean the power sector up, you clean the way we produce energy. Um, you know, that's, that's going to save hundreds of millions of lives. Um, and yeah, the, they could be in the same goal, but, uh, I just, I just saw that this had all these myriad downstream effects. Um, and I guess it kind of harks back to the the you know the water pump at the school. It's just like I saw there was an opportunity in the challenge, um, and that's what appealed to me, and that's where I get my my motivation, honestly. Yeah, I mean it's so interesting too. I mean the the fact that you're within this industry that could ultimately make this unbelievable chain uh, change to to our world. And you're, you're at the forefront, you're talking to these different people, these different investors, these different innovators and, and uh, professors, you know, educators, everything like that. And you're really getting a sense as to what is going on in our world today and how we can make a change with it. You know, when, when I, I like to ask a lot of different people on, you know, what sort of advice you've gotten really jumping into this space. Have you had any sort of you know, mentor or anything like that, really getting within this industry that is so complex, but then also so important at the same time. Yeah, it's less so, I mean, I didn't even, I barely knew what venture capital was by the time I got to Stanford. Um, And so I wasn't really looking for advice on like the space or or how to get into it. Um, I think it was more just that I was working on on policy. Uh, and so that's what I had been doing in India. That's what I'd been studying up until that point. And I was getting really frustrated because, you know, policy is just notoriously intractable and notoriously slow moving, particularly in things like international climate policy, which is what I focused on. And so 
I was very frustrated not seeing tangible outcomes of my work. And at, at the, all the same time, at the same time, you know, we had a president who was just rolling back decades of people's painstaking labor yeah. uh, with the with this swipe of a pen, you know, the, the signature on a piece of paper. And I never wanted to get into a place where, you know, my life's work would be, be rolled back by, by one man in his pen. And so, at, so while I was kind of mulling over that at Stanford, you know, this incredible hub of innovation, there was this kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem that was budding, that was being cultivated uh, to fo- focused on clean tech. Um, and a lot of it was through a guy named Dave Danielson, who uh, a professor of mine who helps run Bill Gates's uh, clean tech fund, Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And so um, I saw him, you know, the, the work he was doing, and uh, I learned a lot from that. Um, in particular, I learned, you know, you can explore, it was an opportunity to explore many curiosities because I was doing, I was just chasing every curiosity I could at Stanford. And I was really kind of, I had some trepidation about trying to just pick one with my career and going deep on one. And I, I saw him just exploring everything. And so that kind of appealed to me. Um, but yeah, and then I, it kind of led me to explore things. Like I was doing a zero carbon cement project. I, I did a project on Actually, that led me back to Uganda and Kenya doing electric vehicles. And, and so that exposure um, to the space is kind of what I guess was my best. Uh, it's not advice, but, you know, the best the, the exposure was what convinced me to get in. No, it's, it's super interesting. And, and I always like to talk to people that, you know, are way smarter than me when it comes to these different topics. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask you you know, I've I've listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of articles, especially recently as as we've kind of gotten into this. You know, I feel like it's been it's been a few years now, but I think like the the wildfires that happen really in Northern California that lasted days on end, and then the, the ice storms that happen in Texas, you know, my hometown of Dallas, it, it really affected you know, neighbors of my parents, my parents in general, things like that, that really, it makes you think a lot about what we could change potentially in our world. And what I wanted to ask you are, you know, potentially like, what are two or three things that you yourself are very much honed in on when it comes to climate change, clean energy, and decarbonization, you know, what are the types of topics that you're really thinking about and might be the most important for us to really get a hold of, of the situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one is just scaling solutions in emerging markets for, you know, obvious reasons, given my background. So I, you know, I won't go, I won't re-elaborate the point there, but I guess the second one would probably be, I like to call it power to X. So clean energy to X. And so what I mean by that is just using clean energy um, to decarbonize other segments of the economy. And so many people, I think, don't realize that in most, not most, but many parts of the world already, clean energy is just the cheapest. It just wins outright over yeah. over fossil energy. Um, and so that's an incredible opportunity to, to move huge swaths of our entire and global economy to be powered on clean energy. And so... The obvious one is transportation. Obviously, you see electric cars as a result of this. It just, you know, now uh, in, in, in a few years, not not just powering the vehicle will be cheaper as it already is, but just buying the vehicle up front will also be cheaper. 
Um, and a lot of it's just because, you know, when you have free energy that comes from the sky or that comes from wind or the sun, it just opens up huge new opportunities. And so the things I like to focus on are using that power to make things like steel, using that power to make things like cement, or even using that power to make carbon-free fuels that can run airplanes, that can target all the other sectors of the economy that we really don't have great solutions for because they run on these these energy-dense fuels. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's one thing I'm very excited about. And I think people uh, don't fully appreciate how big of an opportunity that is. Um, and, and not just for, you know, those sectors, but like I said, all the, all the, the downstream benefits that come with that. Yeah. And you kind of alluded to this uh, a little bit before in, in the podcast where you were talking about, where you read a, a, a stat or a study that one in five people ha- have been led to, um, you know, dying because of, of, carbon emissions and, and things like that. You know, I, I listened to a podcast a few days ago um, that this, uh, it was the Sway podcast with Kara Swisher and she was interviewing a public health official. And one of the questions, you know, a lot, a lot of the podcast was about COVID, you know, essentially and, and what we do. But one of the questions that she asked that was really insightful for me and and just like wide my eyes was what do you foresee being the next global pandemic? And I'm putting it in air quotes because, you know, who knows if there's ever going to be like another uh, COVID-19 in our lifetime, but her answer was climate change. And that to me just, I was, I was like, really, when you, when you think of it like that in a public health official is saying the next global pandemic would be climate change. And I know that you didn't, I'm sure you didn't listen to the podcast or anything like that. So I'm just kind of, I kind of wanted to throw that at you and and see what your thoughts were about that. And and I know that you threw the stat out earlier. So it seems like you have been, you know, kind of thinking about that, that type of a thing when it comes to a public health perspective, but yeah, what are, what are your thoughts about that? Um, and how can ordinary people you, you care about in the environment really help the environment on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So on on the first question, I think climate is going to be, climate change is going to be immeasurably worse, just, just an orders of magnitude worse than this pandemic if we really don't get a hold of it. And it's, it's because of what I said earlier, it's just, it's a threat accelerant. It's a threat multiplier. It, Mm -hmm. every kind of, any kind of challenge you can think of natural disasters, drought, political instability, um, immigration, it, it just exacerbates all these issues um, and it speeds them up and makes them worse. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, that's why that, that's kind of the, the insight I had as an undergrad. And that's what led me to get into this space is like, this is the one thing that if you pull, pulls all these different threads. Um, and so, you know, we don't think about it here so much until we're living it with it. But I mean, there's plenty of ways that that our day to day lives are already impacted. Um, and we just aren't really relating them to climate change. And, and many ways on the on the, you know, the news cycle, it's already things that our climate is already pressing upon. It's just hard to tie that. And so things like, you know, there's evidence that the civil war in, in Syria was a lot of it was driven by climate change, or even the even the situation with immigration coming up from Central America, a lot of that is is um, people just fleeing drought and fleeing ag- agricultural crop failures um, because mm-hmm. of a changing climate. 
And so, you know, when I, when you, the, the question is if it's going to be the next pandemic. And I think in many ways it, it already is, and it's just only going to continue to be, it's just, we just don't think about it in such an acute way as like a, as coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's crazy. Cause it's not like it's, it's an infection that you can test that you can see people deteriorating or it's contagious or anything like that. But it's something that we do live with on a day-to-day basis that we have to take control of. And it's, it's super interesting in that respect. Um, oh, I didn't answer question. your other question. Oh yeah, um, go ahead. What can an order an ordinary person do? Yeah. Um, so this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about when I first got into the space and Part of the reason I focused on institutions uh, when I got to Indonesia is because I came away after reflecting on on the you know collective action versus individual action, realizing that what you can do as an individual, as an ordinary person, is quite limited um, to actually address the problem. So much of it is out of your hands. You know, if you want to fly somewhere, there's really no other option. Um, you know, if you want to fly somewhere internationally, for example, you can't take the train there. You can't you know, driving an electric vehicle there. Um, I mean, certainly there's ways in which you can reduce your impact, but but really the way to tackle the climate crisis is by large-scale systemic change. And the way an ordinary person can have a role in kind of catalyzing that change is really getting involved in the political process more than anything. So as I mentioned, you know, the, I feared having my life's work in the policy realm rolled back because of signature on a piece of paper. And so the result of that is just you get involved in the policy process so that enough people who are like-minded prevent that from ever happening. Um, I think that's that's the by far the most impactful thing you could do is vote with climate in mind. Um, and it's not to say like, you know, it's a, it's a myopic approach to politics. I think I think you can vote with climate in mind, knowing that climate is the accelerant of all of our, all, all of our challenges and risks. Yeah, no, that's that's extremely insightful, and I and I love the the fact that you know we we put it in, in terms of a metaphor, just you know relating it to a swipe of a pen, and all of everything is rolled back. It's just it's incredible to think of it like that in that respect. Um, when I think about everything that you've kind of gone through in terms of your education, getting into this career with a venture capital firm with the, the intention of decarbonizing the world and everything like that, what advice would you give to someone who is extremely passionate about the industry and everything in general? You know, what can you tell someone that might be listening to this podcast that really wants to get into maybe the climate change space, decarbonization, things like that. Because when I think about really the public education system, there's really none of this being taught in high school and maybe in college if you're taking an elective or something like that. But I feel like it's really once you get to the master's level or really doing your own research or interning, things like that, what can people do and what sort of advice would you give them really getting into this space? Yeah. So, I mean, to get into the space, I think the best advice is to do just that, just like get in, just try to get involved in any way possible. And just, and that's not to say, you know, that's what you need to stick with is the path that you decide you want to get involved. That's what you need to stay with. Um, Because like I said, I've 
done many things in my life where it just taught me that I didn't want to do that. And I think that's a very valuable learning experience. And so just trying things out and often that's just playing to your strengths or playing to your curiosities and learning, um, you know, what stimulates you, what motivates you. Cause I think that's the way you're most impactful. That's your, your most effective when you're motivated and, and when you're engaged. Um, and so really it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not a su- super practical advice to just say, just do it. But, um, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of ways I think that, that any kind of career can really have a role to play. Um, so one example, uh, and this, this loops back to Tyler again, who, who got me into climate because, uh, I just got him into climate. I mean, he got himself there. He was interested in getting into the space, but you know, I, I told them like, you should use your, your skills and your background in, in media and communications and content and branding. Um, you know, we need these skills too. Yeah. You know, people think just like, as I was intimidated by energy and, and clean energy to begin with, because I didn't think I was an, could be an engineer. Um, I realized that there's just endless ways to do it. It's not, it's not just policy and engineering. Um, it's, there's really a role for everyone. Um, I think there's very few, few careers and skill sets that, that can't be used towards this challenge because I mean, ultimately it's a challenge that touches everything. And so everything's kind of needed. And so just, if you're interested in getting the space, like just try doing what you've been doing, but in, in the direction of climate. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, just, just the fact that you were talking about integrating yourself in, in ways that, you know, maybe you do have a lot more experience in branding, marketing, you know, for Tyler on the, on the sports aspect of things and now moving into, into climate and things like that. That's, that's something that you could really benefit yourself, you know, catapulting yourself in your career. So that's a great way of looking at it and great advice. Uh, Alex, this has been extremely insightful. I feel like just brain cells are growing in my mind right now of just, I, I feel like 10 times smarter. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> But I do have some final questions for you that I ask all of my guests uh, to wrap up the interview. But looking back on your freshman year of college self, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Um, I would say that the most important thing to do with the time you have is to explore your curiosity. Um, Colleges, universities are just this unbelievable kind of test bed for all your curiosities. Um, and so don't worry about having it figure it out by the time you graduate. Granted, I recognize, you know, there's some privilege in saying that because some people need to have it figured out. So, yeah. uh, I recognize that there, but, um, you know, just, just don't, don't worry about, about having your life planned by the time you graduate. Um, just explore, take that time to explore. Um, cause most people are, are just kind of winging it just like you are. No one's kind of fully figured out. Yeah. Um, and and there's plenty of time to party. Uh, don't, don't worry <laughs> about that. Have fun, but you know, strike the balance. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, what was the worst advice you ever took and executed on it? I would say don't prioritize gaining skills above all else. And what I mean by that is specifically marketable skills for for professional careers. Certainly, they're valuable, undoubtedly. But sometimes you risk not developing and exploring certain paths because you're just focused on, you know, the ability to gaining the ability to code or, and so while skills are certainly valuable, I think what's most important is that you're motivated in your, in your work. And so that might be, don't trade off your, your curiosity for skills. 
I love that. I love that. Um, what do you do to sharpen your sword and refine your craft? I spend a lot of time reading. Well, I guess not reading. I do a lot of Audible, a lot of podcasts. Nice. Um, it's just the way <laughs> to digest the most information. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back to what I was talking about earlier about perspectives. It's you know reading and 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 just content like like podcasts are a way to expand your perspectives. Um, and honestly, admittedly, I spend a lot of time <laughs> relaxing. I think I need, I need personally, I need that, that balance of kind of decompressing at the end of the day. Um, and I find I would probably be too neurotic to be, to be, to have a refined craft if I didn't kind of also take time to slow things down, enjoy. Yeah. No, I've actually, I've never gotten that answer before. And I love that. What, what kind of things do you do to just chill out, man? Just, just chill. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, sometimes it's exercise, sometimes meditation. So it's sometimes just like yeah. some, some couch time, you know, some Netflix time. I think it's pretty important for your mental health to, to de- decompress sometimes and, and not be plugged in all the time. Travel is a good one too. Nice, man. Nice. Well, again, Alex, like I'm not joking when I say it was an extremely insightful conversation, learned a ton about just like climate change in general, the, the what you're doing with this particular fund with lower carbon capital and everything like that. I mean, now I just feel like I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the subject matter and learn a little bit more into what's going on in our world and how we can maybe potentially change things uh, just from a, you know, regular old guy like myself. So this has been great. Thank you so much. Last thing, where can people find you? Social media, everything like that. Uh, I'm on Twitter, A underscore La Plaza. Uh, you could probably just search my name, Alex La Plaza. Um, I do a lot of posting related to my work on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of the cool, funky stuff that we look at as a fund. Yeah, that's probably, probably where you'll find me. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, thanks for the opportunity, man. I really enjoyed the chat. really appreciate it and the kind words. Yeah, this has been great. So thanks again. Next one. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Alex La Plaza. Super smart guy knows what he wants to do, knows how he wants to make a difference in the world. And, I mean, you just got to be a little bit jealous on how much he travels, too. I mean, I know I am. So go check him out on his Twitter, A underscore La Plaza. Go check out the different things that he has brewing up in terms of his tweets, his, his LinkedIn posts, and things like that. And don't forget to go follow us on all social media platforms at Beyond the Profile. Subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening.